Welcome back to Civil Action with Brian Kabatek and Sean Karnikian. Say hello to everybody, Sean. I'm hello, sure everyone. they miss you. Oh, I'm sure they miss you. Thank you. It said no one. So what do we normally do on Civil Action? We normally cover cases that come down from the appellate courts, the California Court of Appeals, the various uh, appellate courts in the federal district and the California Supreme Court and the United States Supreme Court, the big one. But today we're going to do something a little more, maybe more interesting, something a little different at least. And who normally are we? We're we're normally Brian Kavitek and Sean Kernikian. Right. Right. And and, and what are we today? Where's our law firm? (laughs) We're normally Kavitek LLP and our law firm is normally in Los Angeles. Still in Los Angeles last time I checked. We're breaking out from all of that, aren't we? Yeah. And we do plaintiff's work and we like to talk about stuff that concerns a plaintiff's bar that affects your practice. Normally we like to do a little uh, 25 minute law school. Normally. And, uh, Cover cases that are important, important cases that come down, what's going on with case cases, right? And we like hearing feedback from you guys, and we appreciate the feedback we've gotten so far. There's and, no feedback. I can hear everything perfectly. No, today. not that kind of feedback. People responding to us and saying things to us. and uh, Normally, we like that. We normally like that. We usually like that. I thought this was going to be a huge failure. Hey, people have actually come up to me. We've been on the air for almost a year soon. People have actually come up to me in, in, in public places and said, I listen to your podcast. No, they haven't. Yes, they have. No. Absolutely. No, they are making so if up. you if you listen to this podcast, come up to us sometime and tell us and give us your thoughts. Actually, we we really do respect people's opinions. We want to hear what you like. But today we're going to break the norm, aren't we? We are. How are we, we going to do that? We're going to talk about other topics. One topic. One topic. We're going to talk about. Um, what should we talk about, Brian? No, we're going no. to talk about. Litigation funding, outside money in law firms, hedge fund money in law firms. How that affects the practice of law, where it goes, the whole notion of potentially non-lawyers owning law firms. Or practicing law sometimes, yeah. Yeah, practicing law without a license like you have for years. Yeah, I'm sorry. And we're going to talk he's about. He's kidding. If the state bar is listening, he's kidding. I have two eight five zero four eight. That's my state <laughs> bar number. I've been licensed. That's actually funny. You made me laugh. Yeah. You wow. made me laugh. Wow. So we're going to talk about litigation funding and when, how it impacts law firms in general. So let's just start by explaining that you know the plaintiff's practice law is unusual. I've often said that if we went to the Wharton School of Economics and we stood up in front of a advanced class and we said the model of a plaintiff's practice is. We put all of our time into our case. We put our money into into hard dollars, into expenses, which are not tax deductible at all. We put uh, our resources into it. We usually, like our firm, we have a number of employees, people here who expect to get a paycheck the 1st and the 15th of the month. And we have no absolute certainty of an outcome. Plus, you have the vagaries of judges, juries, court of appeals, uh, uh, Supreme Courts, legislators, any one of them that can screw up your uh, your case. And that school, that class at, the, at Wharton School of Economics would look at us and go, you're crazy. Yeah, they would say, who would do that? Is this gambling 101? Is what that, is are that the you class? thinking? Yeah. yeah. And so, uh, but, you know, it is very entrepreneurial. And part of it is you need resources. You need money. You need funds. So I guess as you kind of go along the spectrum, the first would be you're just rich. You get into this practice. You have money. Right. You have family capital. money. Yeah, yeah. You have capital to start. And uh, I, I'm pretty sure that almost nobody fits into that category when they first start out. I'm sure there's some people that do. And and that, well, your family money. 
Yeah, maybe. Yeah, uh, maybe they me, looted yeah. from a foreign country. Right, <laughs> right. It's possible. And yeah. then, then you move further along, and you get people who um, at least get traditional loans, traditional bank loans, small business loans, small like business yeah. loans to be able to operate their firm while they're waiting for cases to come, or more importantly, while they're funding those cases, uh, the costs and expenses associated with them. And then, as you go further down, you know, you're you're looking at different types of loans, maybe hard money loans. And then you finally get to what I kind of call generally hedge fund money. Yeah, somebody else loaning you money, having an interest in the really your cases, but it's not a direct interest in a particular case, but it's an interest in the business. Could be, it could then, be non-recourse. Yeah, yeah and it if could it's be. non-recourse, you could be paying as much as twenty-five uh, percent per annum right. compounded. Now, right? how new is this, Brian? Well, it's relative. I mean, that because some of this is going to be like an interview, so, sort of, because you're 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 old. There's no other way to put it. Uh, no, you've been doing this you for a while. See the hurt look on my face yeah, when you yeah, say did, something. Did I immediately I, regretted it? I don't think I'm I said, old. Oh I just think that, that no, I, I started working in a in a plaintiff's law office January of 1981. Wow! So there have been a lot of changes. Yeah, and a, a lot of these changes have been necessitated by and the fact before that, that for like 30 years you were doing defense work. I think right. That's not since funny. 1950. No, you weren't. Okay, so so what was what was it like then in terms of uh, not in terms well, of well, we had know, candles, and yeah, quills right. Not, not in no, terms of I, typewriters, I but most. What lawyers, was the funding? How well, how was the business? I was in back college then? and law school, and I think most lawyers self funded. Most lawyers had a quicker turnover, but of course, you were dealing with much smaller cases. As people got more aggressive, they built their practices. This has become necessary, but. I think it is a potential epidemic, and that's that's one of the things we want to talk about today. One other thing I want to put on the table, though, before we dive into the discussion is the State Bar of California, which is just become nothing but um, a bunch of buffoons, in my humble opinion, trying to run an organization which is no longer about the lawyers, but it's a regulatory organization. And they're put on the table a proposal or a concept to have non-lawyers own, have interest in law firms and or have um, the ability to, in some manner, um, practice law, like, for example, artificial intelligence, right? Like have a stake in the business and make decisions on what type of cases need to settle or don't need to settle and, you know, which ones they should take a risk on. That's a crazy where, where discussion in come, and of itself. Where, where do you think that came from? You think it's the outside kind of money and, and interest that forced them to— and I think that of, what they do is they try to get their nose under the tent by claiming that it's going to make access to justice more available for people. Right. Now, there's no question— there's a problem. The vast majority of people in California don't have ready access to lawyers and, and therefore don't have ready access to justice. It's a tremendous problem. But I don't believe it's a tremendous problem when you come to the plaintiff's arena. Right. I, I think because you can take these cases on, on a contingency and it's a lucrative business if you're good at it. Right. But domestic violence, family law, child custody, issues like that. And, and, and even in the criminal system, as good as some of the public defenders are, there does seem to be this impression that there's two sets of justice in this country, right? And, and do you think that's the type of practice that these outside the outside money wants to get into? I the think hedge that's the kind of practice that they're using to get their nose under the tent. Right. I don't right. think that – I think legitimately they want in on the plaintiff's Plaintiff. practice. Yeah. And it's an area where we don't need it. So let's go back to what we're talking about here with – 
people borrowing money at high interest rates, whether it's recourse or non-recourse. What's recourse and what's non-recourse, Sean? A recourse loan is uh, a loan where the lender can take some sort of recourse. You, you, It's usually a securitized loan. You put up some kind of collateral, whether it's in property or something like that, and they have the ability to get their money back, right? And non-recourse is usually tied specifically in this context to the cases. Right. And the success and the outcome of the cases. And sometimes they look at these situations and they say, if you win this case, we're going to get a big chunk of money, you know, maybe at this high interest rate, maybe a piece of the action, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the bus ads, like no no win, no fee or something like that. Right. So, and sort and of like that. I, I think that it's very, very dangerous. And I think why do you think it's dangerous? Well, I think that one of the main reasons it's dangerous is because it incentivizes people to borrow money uh, if there is no particular outcome. And I'm talking now about recourse loans. If you don't, if you don't know exactly how you're going to pay it back, you end up borrowing more money. You dig yourself in deeper. You know the old story about uh, borrow from Peter to pay Paul, that kind of thing. But also, it's the old story about the uh, the way to get out of a hole is not to dig deeper. Yeah. Right. Well, here's what I think is a problem with the recourse loans, why it's dangerous for us. It'll force people, it'll force lawyers to potentially settle cases on the cheap. Right. Just so they could guarantee that they have the money because it's a recourse loan. If they hey, don't that, repay it. That that person is there on the first of the month expecting the payment. Yep. And I've had an incident where I was involved in a case with a co-counsel, and the co-counsel called me crying, literally weeping on the phone, saying he wanted to borrow a very large sum of money because he couldn't make his payment. If he couldn't make his payment, his practice was going to collapse. Yeah. And that can incentivize people to do desperate things. And this is before you even get to desperate things, just stick on what you talked about before. Settling you know? cases for cheap. I mean, which I consider a desperate thing. I right. mean, settling cases for uh, a quarter of their value, ten percent of their value. How and much we're not will saying you pay everyone me today? Should... How much will you pay me today? Yeah. I just got to get this case settled. Can I yeah. come get the check? I need to get yeah. this case settled. Yeah. I mean, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. And we're not saying that the lawyers that do this, that borrow money, are susceptible to doing these things necessarily. Some of them might be. We're not saying they're bad people. We're not saying they're weak people. But when you're in that position, you desperate, look at desperate you, times your paradigm desperate is measures, yeah, right? You're, you're looking at it through a different lens. You're looking at it as how quickly can I get this settled? Not how much can I get this settled for? How much can I get my client? And we're not saying every case needs to be tried and get and go to verdict and get a multi-million dollar settlement or verdict. Out no. Of it, and, but, and sometimes the need to borrow money to, to legitimately fund a meritorious case that is going to have a great result for your client at the end of the day is something that's very important. But there are alternatives. And certainly one of the alternatives is to partner up with a law firm that has the resources to do the case themselves, yeah. Yeah. traditional loans. But if all else fails, it's a possibility. And also, uh, sometimes clients come and they say, you know, I need a monthly little monthly money. I need something. I need something to survive. And those kind of recourse or non-recourse loans might help the client. Yeah. So I don't want to completely though, discount You set it. that up for the client. But I'm talking about the slippery slope. Yeah. I'm talking about people who want to build high-volume law practices um, by using hedge fund money. Now, what about non-recourse loans? Why, why are those dangerous? Well, I think there's a number of reasons why. Because first of all, um, let's just take the lawyer's standpoint for a second. If you have a non-recourse loan, but yet you're paying 25% uh, interest per year compounded and it's going to be say you're expecting you're going to get a million dollars million dollar fee out of a case and you borrow say 3 or 400,000 dollars in the meantime and it takes several years 
to get that case resolved. Are you with me so far? Yeah, yeah. Okay, and now here's where I fail because I'm terrible at math, but what's what would be 25% of, say, $400,000 if you borrow $400,000? $100,000. That's going to be each year now, but that's compounded. So now the next year, it's 25% of $500,000. Right. And then it's 25% of the next number and so on and so forth. So, okay, so finally you get your million-dollar payday. Three, four years later, you get your million-dollar million payday. Million-dollar payday. You might, what do you end up with? A couple hundred thousand yeah, dollars out yeah. of it. The rest of the money goes. So it's a slippery slope. It sounds like a good idea at the time. Well, I'm going to get some money to fund my practice. I'm going to get some money to move forward. But then when that payday comes in, you're no further ahead and than isn't where it you kind were of four like years a, earlier. And isn't it kind of like a crutch? And I and I see I see and I've learned this from you know working for Brian or with Brian, where I like to know, say you work with me. Sure. Sure. You're like sure. you're a, you're just like a friend of mine who works with me who I can fire. Yeah, that's right. Right? That's friend right. I can fire. I get a paycheck, I laugh at your jokes, you know, it's it's all great. No, but but I've learned that you can't spend like a drunken sailor on shore leave you on can. cases. I mean, you can. It's very easy to yes. in fact. That's something I've learned. It's very easy Experts to. are the last um unchecked part of of sort of litigation world. Yeah, and fortunately, I still work here, so I haven't done that. Uh, but it's very easy to do that, and it's very easy to rely on experts. Well, I'm not going to review this myself. I have that expert. I'll have the expert do it. Oh, well, we need an expert for this area. We need an expert to do that. And- or or let's go one step beyond that, which is I need my depot summarized. I'm going to send it out to an outside service. I'm going to get them to do it. I mean, I need my documents put in cron order. I'm going to send it to an outside service. I'm going to get them to do that. Things like that that maybe at one level in your law practice you can afford to do. At another it's better to cancel your plans on a Saturday and do it yourself and save the money. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is just... you. So you, so when you have that tap, that fountain of non-recourse money where you go, eh, well, that's fine. I mean... I can draw on it. Yeah, yeah. It's right and over there. Just, I can draw on, on it. I can you, draw on it. And you know what? I really need a new Lambo. That's probably not a good reason to borrow no, money. No, but people probably will go out and people use that do. money to live lifestyle. That's probably true. Or not even if they use that money directly, but the money they save on, you know, I didn't have to pay out of pocket for that last expert. I borrowed the money and the the, the, the tab is still running. I still have that tab open. But look, I, there's all this money left over in my account this year. I can get a Lambo now. Right. Whereas and, that, that money should have been earmarked to pay for the expert that you borrowed money for. Or I'm going to build my law firm based upon this kind of money. Whether yeah. it's 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 whether it's hard money loans, which generally would be high interest loans, but recourse loans, or whether it's non recourse tied to your case inventory, I'm going to build my law firm. I'm going to go out. I'm going to sp- I'm spending two hundred fifty thousand dollars a month on advertising. I'm going to get lots of cases, lots of cases. I'm going to build my law and firm, and that might work, but I don't know if it always works. Or you know. works for the long range. Yeah. yeah. Does it work for the long range? I mean, you know, one thing is lawyers are not particularly good business people. They yeah. need somebody advising them on business. They need somebody. And, and I'll, I'll just say this, that there are cases here in Los Angeles, here in California, across the country, of lawyers who have found themselves in deep, deep, deep trouble because of loans. Yeah. And they find themselves living beyond their means. No surprise, right? Yeah, yeah. So what what do you think is the solution to all of this? Do you think it's, you know, people get upset when you say more regulation, more regulation, but do you think there should be some type of controls because it's, I think, undeniable from my perspective as someone doing the day-to-day and having to make decisions. Um, you know, if there was some type of 
constraint on my hands about, oh, well, this needs to settle now because there's a bill due next month. Right. Um, I think the quality of the work I provide would, would severely degrade. And, and so do you, do you, I think it would be appropriate to kind of regulate this. And, well, and, I mean, the, to some extent, there's it is an regulated. It's regulated right. by the state bar, despite the things that I say about the state bar. The number one thing the state bar does is it goes after bad lawyers, right? Yeah. And the number one way it goes after bad lawyers is... If you screw up money. Trust account right? violations, yeah, right? Yeah. And so it's every time you, you open up the paper or you see the report, disciplinary reports, it's almost always yeah. more than 50% of those people are being disciplined because of trust account violations. So you see how easy it is to get yourself trapped in a corner. You got to pay rent. You got to pay bills. I got it. Well, you know, there's some money in my trust account. So now take that and take that same state of mind to these loans yeah. and you get caught in this slippery slope. So what are the solutions for this? First of all, get somebody to advise you on business. You know, if you were going into your own practice, say for example, you know, 15 minutes from now we go off the air and I fire you, which is always a possibility. Right. And yeah. you decide to start your own practice. Sure. You know, you wouldn't go out right away and get like a lavish office. You would be intelligent. Well, I can borrow money and do that. Right. I'll That's get a my place whole in Beverly Hills. point. Have you listened to it'll anything be Beverly Hills, I've been saying? on Wilshire. I mean, it'll be nice. Why be nice. you of all people would want to be in Beverly Hills? <laughs> wouldn't you be happy in Glendale? <laughs> Oh, that's that's offensive. That's <laughs> offensive. Uh, no, he can say it. He's half Armenian, but only half. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's good advice that don't go off and, and start spending on things that you don't need. In fact, I have friends that have solo practices that do decent and, and some of them, some of them have gone off and spent on big fancy offices and some of them say, at this point, I kind of don't Why even would need you an office. want that stress? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, figure out a way to build build slowly. The other thing advice I was going to give was go out and get someone who can act as a business manager or a business advisor or somebody who knows business. Someone that could protect you from yourself, kind yeah, of? But, yeah, but someone who is, you know, like a spouse almost, but not really, because that would be a bad idea, because that would lead to all kinds of problems. Divorce or murder. Personal, yeah. yeah, right. I know on a personal basis, and I've never been divorced, and I've never murdered my spouse, although I'm quite certain she's tried to murder me probably uh deservedly but, so but someone who can advise you on business okay that's the next thing is don't live beyond your means you know and if you have a business plan and your business plan really calls for cash infusion look at traditional lending first well what about a lambo nope no ferrari have you no. listened to anything i've said today? fine porsche um yeah yeah i think that's important too and and I think as being a, entrepreneurial means taking risks. Being entrepreneurial does entrepreneurial doesn't mean taking unreasonable risks, yeah. right? Doing things smart and looking smart. And and I think it's almost easier. I think actually the example of a young lawyer, you know, less than 10 years in practice is less likely to get in trouble than the 15 or 20-year lawyer who's itching to break out, itching to sort of live a life. I mean, one of the things that I fault the Los Angeles, particularly the Los Angeles plaintiff's bar for is the the sort of high living um high the the high presence of some of the lawyers who are flashy and you know live a big existence and a big expensive existence you don't have to compete with them don't compete yeah. with them be a good lawyer i know that sounds stupid there's but plenty of I, i've come to learn that working here we're fortunate enough to work with other people like co people that co-counsel with us that refer us cases that are successful lawyers and that are people that don't have like huge names that don't live flashy lives and you know it, and I, i'm guilty of this too you kind of look at it and you go i want to be like that guy i want to have this i want to have that and that's not really it that shouldn't be the that's just window dressing sort of what the meat of it is 
what people are accomplishing. Look, there might be some flashy guy that's accomplished a lot, but you should look to his accomplishments, not to what he has or what he's wearing or what he's driving and stuff. There's so a reason. I, I think that's the lesson I've 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 kind of slowly transitioned into, and I'm still slowly understanding that. And there's plenty of people out there that are extremely happy, extremely successful that aren't aren't flashy, aren't what you think they are. Yeah, and I don't want to be too. I mean, it, it's really an interesting topic that we can talk about sometime about sort of the. The massive ego of the plaintiff's the culture, bar yeah. versus the fact that the vast majority of plaintiff lawyers are good, decent people who want to do a good job for their client, want to represent their client, want to win, want to succeed, and are winners. So that's that's a topic for almost for another day. But the, the reason I think it's important to talk about here is don't let your hubris get your better of you. There's a reason that somebody is out there wanting to loan you money at 25%. And and by the way, Sean, if you want to borrow money from me at 25% interest compounded daily, Wow, that's you just give write a number on a piece recourse of paper. Recourse or non-recourse? Oh, total recourse. You write a. Uh, you, do you know what the word indentured servitude means? You know what those words yeah, mean? My, that's my job. Right. That's my job. That's my life. Right. Seven years. Yeah. You will be. You'll be very happy living in the basement of my house, paying off the loan. How much can I get for seven years? Like twenty thousand. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> that's it. I got to work for you for seven years. Sure. I get twenty grand. Sure. Uh, so. Very, very careful about this. I, I think it's bad for the practice. I And I go back to the fact that I'm really worried about these mills, high-volume practices that are being funded by these kinds of cases that need exactly what you said, Sean, the quick turnover of cases. That's my biggest worry. That's why I think regulation is warranted. That's because, and and sure, I get it that the state bar polices people that mess with trust accounts and, and deliberately take What kind of regulation money. would you but, say? But, I don't know. I mean, I'm just putting the idea out there. But what about the firm that's handling hundreds of cases and they're shortchanging each one of them uh, by you know 20%? And for sure, for the guy that got eighteen thousand instead of twenty thousand or something like that, it's not a big deal. But if this is getting done over and over and over again, and instead of and getting their happens, set of clients twenty million dollars this year, they got them then, sixteen but, but, million. But but then what happens is you then start creating an artificial market value for cases, right? If these high that volume too. firms too. are constantly reducing their cases by twenty or twenty five percent value, so they can get them flipped sooner. All of a sudden, that $20,000 case, the carriers start thinking are only worth $15,000. And then that becomes the artificial marketplace. People need to try cases. They're not going to try cases if they know that they've got their creditor out there with their handout. People need to set the value, marketplace value for the cases appropriately. But what's going to happen, and I've seen it happen, is they're going to set their own market value, these cases. It's not just a breach of their ethics to settle cases below that. It, it is just wrong. It's fundamentally morally wrong to do that. Like nobody's a winner. It's a quick fix. It's it, a quick Hey, if, a quick I were, if I were a major insurer in this country, which I'm not, but if I was, I would be sitting there setting up my own hedge funds, encouraging these firms, encouraging these lawyers to borrow money from me because I know it's sure. going to put pressure on them. Sure. Not only am I going to make money, but it's going to put pressure on them to settle sure. their cases. Yeah. Get them settled. I'd be out there telling consumers, if you're in a personal injury case, come to us and we'll loan you money and we'll work with your lawyer and, and, and create that because it will drive the value of the cases down. Yeah. It will make it's almost the opposite of access money. to justice. It's almost the it's like shortchanging justice. It's it and it is an access to justice issue because yes, there is an access to justice issue that runs under all of this, which is funding gives you 
equal footing with the carriers and the insurers. But there's other ways to get that, Sean. And I think one of the other ways, and I know what people listen to this will sound like we're talking about a commercial, but go to a good firm who, if you've got a big, decent case. Not us, anyone. I mean, not just us, but but anyone, yeah. Well, no us. Yeah. Us specifically? But specifically us. No, <laughs> but, but Sean's right. There are so many good lawyers out there who have the resources and funding to be able to handle a case. And you can maximize your value. I've seen it. You've seen it, Sean, even with working with me. Yeah. You've seen people who sit there and they come to us and they pick our brain about a case and then they try to do it themselves because they don't want to part with part of the fee. Yeah. And I worry that those cases, there's no way to tell objectively, but sometimes there even is. I worry that they get undersold. They get undervalued because of the fact that they come to us and go, oh, okay, well, that doesn't sound that bad. I can, maybe I can take care of this. Maybe I could settle this. And, and, you know, they, they undervalue the case. They undermine what their clients actually deserve sometimes. So this yeah. isn't a cry to, you know, bring cases. To I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Maybe more disclosures. Yeah. Maybe disclosures if you're operating on a, on a firm where you've got that kind of credit line that you're living off of. Um, but be careful. Yeah. That's, that's the main message here is be careful. Yeah. So that's an interesting topic. Um, and we'd like to hear your feedback on this issue. We're going to try to have some guests on to talk about issues like this and, and other issues that affect the plaintiff's bar. Where can they find us? Um, they can find us online at kbklawyers.com. We'd love to hear from you. Um, yep. And you can check out our other, other podcasts if you want to be um, bored uh, hearing No, us. don't no? say that. I think we're boring, but but some people have said we're, we're kind of funny. But I think I'm fascinating. Really? Yeah. yeah. Is, all that right. what, is that what all the people that you pay tell you to? I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> hey, thank you very much for listening to Civil Action. Brian Kabatek, Sean Karnickian. Until next time. Thank you.